Hello and welcome aboard the Battleship Pretension. I'm Tyler Smith. I'm David Bax. And thank you for listening. I was testing you. <laughs> yeah, I know you were. <laughs> uh, how's it going there, David? Uh, pretty good. Yeah. Pretty good. Things are going pretty good. All right. How was your weekend? <laughs> it, it was good. It was we good. should we should do that more. <laughs> we should <laughs> we should start every show with how was your weekend? That's true. Because we do we go up on Mondays, or yeah. Sunday nights. Yeah. But uh, my weekend's not not done yet, buddy. I mean, it's just getting started. But as far as the listener is concerned. You know, they're listening to this on their Monday commute. They're bummed out that the weekend is over. Your weekend sure is not just getting started. What was that? Your weekend is not just getting started. Just Who knows uh, what I'm going to no do in the next eight hours <laughs> yeah, or so. I know how, to, how a calendar works. It's <laughs> it's Sunday afternoon. Your weekend is winding down, as is all of ours. Fair, fair enough. <laughs> that's very that's very sad, David, <laughs> just, as is all of ours. You know, our lives. I'm sorry. I was talking about weekends. Um, but, um, no, I had a good weekend because Friday... Friday. I went and saw the uh, the Watchmen movie. The the Watchmen. The it's the Watchmen movie. The Watchmen movie. <laughs> Watchmen the the movie. Watch no the the movie of the graphic novel called Watchmen. The motion picture you're talking motion about. Motion picture. Okay. Yes. <laughs> I don't know what it is, what it is we're doing. I'm feeling kind of goofy today, David. How uh, well? Okay. Uh, two sentences. What'd you think? I had to say in two sentences what I thought. Yeah. Um, I can say in one sentence, it was way better than I, uh, thought it would be. Okay. All right. I, uh, I will say a second sentence. All right. <laughs> I was, uh, trepidatious. All right. Going in. You, you made good use of that second <laughs> sentence there, David. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry, everybody. You're feeling kind of silly, I think. Um, but, uh, yeah, here's the thing. Uh, I have not yet looked to see how it did this weekend. Yeah. Um, but uh, the reason that everybody, just in case you were wondering, the reason that I gave David uh, only two sentences is because uh, we're trying to avoid talking about... We learned our lesson from Appaloosa, everybody. Yeah, we essentially did a review, and then when it came time to talk about my favorite movies of the year, we had already said I'd do everything I wanted to exactly. say. Exactly, and that's and of course, when you're in a situation like that, you will misspeak and get angry emails. Although, I mean, if Watchmen ends up in my top ten of 2009, then we've got a shitty year ahead of honorable us. Honorable mention. It could be an honorable mention. Could be. Um, and so, but what we will talk about, so, yeah, so we're not going to talk about the movie itself. Just go and read anything, because uh, it's a well-documented, uh, well-reviewed, <laughs> not well-reviewed, but uh, uh, thoroughly widely, reviewed, widely reviewed uh, film. But, uh, but one, and so I don't know, box office-wise, I don't know how it did this weekend but i know that uh that last weekend it was number one mm -hmm. uh but well below anybody's uh expectations or hopes or hopes there you go well done um but the and i, I don't really pay attention to box office i mean you and i were talking about this uh before we started recording that it's just it i, I mean unless it's a movie that i really don't want to do well or a movie that i want to do well uh-huh or some or like a kind of a weird anomaly. It's like, oh, I would never have expected this movie to wind up. Unless it's something like that, I usually don't care that much. But with something like Watchmen, um I had read a lot of articles in a lot of different I mean like Entertainment Weekly, Variety, uh even Newsweek mm -hmm. weighed in on how well is this movie going to do? And I remember just thinking like, what are you guys stupid? Like I don't, th you know, it, it'll be number one that weekend at least. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know how with how much, but of course it's going to be number one. It's a superhero movie. 
And even people who haven't heard of it are going to be like, oh, a superhero movie, as evidenced by all the stories I've heard about parents taking their way too young children to go see it. Uh, have you heard stories? I wondered about that because there was yeah. a kid in the theater when I saw it who was probably, de- I've, I've, having now seen the movie, definitely too young because yeah. it earns its R rating. It sure does. I oh, mean, you saw it? Uh, I saw part of it. Okay. I can't talk more about that. Um, but uh, I thought we were playing like you hadn't seen it. Oh, so I was no, I've, no, I saw part of it. Thank you, David, for putting me uh, on the spot and almost getting me fired. Um, That's not going to happen. But, uh, <laughs> well, not for that reason. Not for that. There you go. Thank you, David. Um, but the, excuse me, um, but it did wind up, a lot of people were predicting, they were predicting that it would make about 70 million, maybe a little bit more. Uh, and it wound up making 55. And that did surprise me. You know, I mean, it just goes to show that I don't know anything about money uh, because it turns out all those articles written were well-founded. I mean, yeah. it it also goes to show just how far removed I am from, like, for lack of a better word, normal people. Yeah. Uh, because everyone I know had either read the graphic novel or were just interested anyway. And so it's like, well, of course it's going to do well because yeah. everybody I know. But it's like, well, not everybody is like everybody I know. And so, uh, but it didn't do so. Well. Why do you think so, David? Um, I would I would say that it's probably the R rating is probably mm-hmm. what kept a lot of people, a, a lot of, uh, you know, again for lack of a better term, normal people. Yeah, that's what kept them away because yeah. it's not Spider Man, <laughs> you know, or, yeah. or or Daredevil or whatever. It's you know, it's, and it's not it's not the, even the Dark Knight. I mean, if the Dark Knight had been rated R, it would have done less well yeah i think it's i don't know like i think it's a combination of factors i think if it was pg-13 it would have done better but like but at the same i don't know i think it's i think some of it has to do with like name recognition because even if dark knight was rated r it's still batman Batman. and the joker and everybody's still gonna see that's a good point yeah but um but Watchmen, nobody really knows what it is. I mean, I found the trailers to be really interesting. Jen, my wife, has not read the graphic novel, uh-huh. and she didn't find the trailers to be that interesting at all. And so, well, I, see, I thought that was a solid trailer. I thought it was great. Yeah, the, that, that initial trailer, whether whether you had seen the, I mean, the, a lot of people uh, talked about <coughs> um, people who were pessimistic about the movie would be like, "There's no dialogue at all in the trailer. That's not a good sign." Like, right. But I kind of like trailers with no dialogue in them because a trailer should just be sort of an abstraction of a film and, and not. And I feel like that trailer was kind of made almost for the fans, almost because there is so much, uh, you know, a lot of people that as, uh, you know, like yourself, were very trepidatious. And all they knew was like eh, Zack Snyder. And then the ca- cast was announced like eh, some of these people are a little too young and, you know, stuff like that. But and then it's like he releases the trailer and it's almost like a greatest hits uh, and, right. and it's like, oh, that's how he's visualizing that scene. Oh, okay. Like, it's, yeah. it's more just like... No, I, I will say, not, not that I feel any great need to defend Zack Snyder, uh, right. but my trepidation didn't really have to do with him, because I I hated 300. Okay. Really hated it. I didn't care for it. <clears throat> and um, But it's occurred to me that it's because I'm not a Frank Miller fan, and Zack Snyder did a good job of translating... Um, a, a book that I don't like. Yeah. And so I v- figured, oh, maybe he'll do a good job of translating a book that I do like. Yeah. I think my trepidation was just, 
is a big studio movie or a movie of any sort gonna be as impactful as Watchmen is meant to be because Watchmen is meant to be a comic book. Mm-hmm. You know, that's that's where my trepidation came from. Not not that I thought Zack Snyder was unequal to the task. There's no mm-hmm. one. There's really, I, there's no one else I would have. I mean, there's uh, there's no one. Th- there are other people that I think could have done a good job, but there's no one I really w- was wishing had done it. It's not like I really wished Terry Gilliam had done it. In fact, as much as I like Terry Gilliam, it probably would have been worse. Hmm. Z- Zack Snyder is, I think, a comic book fan, and I think yeah. he was. Um, I mean, there's changes. There's a there's a change to the ending that doesn't really bother me. Okay. Um, but uh, uh, I think he's the right person to do something that's that beloved because I think he's a loyal comic book fan. Yeah, um, and this is something that I think perhaps we can talk about uh, in an entire episode another time, which is like, you know, one of my problems with 300, um, and we will avoid talking about Watchmen, but one of my problems with 300 was that there's the mentality that you've read where it's just, like if you watch like DVD special features about whether it be Sin City or 300 or something, there's always like an editor, or DP, or the director himself saying it's like it's like you know when you're looking at a comic book, I mean it's almost like uh, a storyboard, and it's like yeah, almost. It isn't actually. You don't <laughs> have to treat it that way. Yeah. In fact, if you want, you can do whatever you like with it. It's yours now. By all means, it's but, and so like that was kind of some of my problem with 300 is that he was so loyal to it that it's just like he, you know there were lines that. It's like, uh, th- these are lines that are meant to be read, not said. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so so that was something that bothered me about, that was, I'd say, the primary thing that bothered me about 300. And it made me, I don't know, I was kind of torn about how he would approach Watchmen, like, as such the, as such the, for li- I, I hate this term, but as such a fanboy uh-huh. that, uh, that he changes nothing. And it's just like, oh, okay. You've changed nothing. Incidentally, incidentally, you know that this is a book that was written in 12 parts, and it's yeah. not supposed to be movie, like a three-act structure at all. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it's so do you, are you looking, I don't know what it's going to be, but are, are you looking forward to Zack Snyder's next foray, uh, whatever it might be? It depends on what it is. Okay. But we're getting away from the point of our conversation sorry, here, which yes, is yes. why did Watchmen not uh, perform. perform as well as yeah. we would have liked it to? Yeah, or as I well mean, as someone would like it to. Exactly right. Um, and and uh, I mean, I don't think this has. I don't. I don't think questions of Zack Snyder's ability to adapt it have right. any large impact. I mean, right, right. If there's anything that like, I don't know, like Snakes on a Plane showed, like fanboys cannot carry a movie on their own. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's a good. That's a really good example, actually. Um. So the, the yeah the, even though there are people. Lined up around the block. I saw them actually. Yeah. Uh, that Thursday night because I was at a bar that happened to, to bisect the line. Yep. <laughs> um, uh, in the at the at the end of the day, most of the money is coming from again normal people. Yeah. So what kept these normal people away? And I think, um, yeah, I think you're right. I, I hadn't even thought about that. That that's another way reason that another example of how we are removed from normal people because. To the and I, I I feel condescending saying normal people, but everyone does it. Whatever. Yeah. Uh, At this point, uh, when I think normal people, I think of like I, I I'm saying it. I'm trying to say it with an insulting ter- uh, an insulting tone toward myself because right. I'm so far removed from. I, I get so wrapped up in stuff that ultimately does not matter that much. But I think 
Well, I think the barometer we've used before is like, has my mom heard of it? Yeah. And yeah. like, it occurs to me now that like, no, my mom would not know who, about the Watchmen. Right. Um. Yeah. That that I hadn't even thought about that because it's. I mean, that's something I read. Uh, back in college, yeah. you know, it's been. I've been in love with it ever since. It's it's been very much in the forefront of my mind. The Watchmen. So it would be interesting to someday do an episode or have a guest of some sort who is, you know, uh, for lack of a better word, an expert uh, about on like box office and what perform what does well and why something doesn't do well. Mm-hmm. Um, because and I think honestly, I think with Watchmen, I don't think it's really that complicated. I think it's a combination of. R rating and it's like oh it's a superhero movie with people I've never heard you know characters, characters I've never heard, heard of, of. yeah um, and and also I, g- I mean I guess if people hadn't heard of the characters they probably also wouldn't know that it's not the most uplifting of superhero <laughs> stories <laughs> yeah. which is another thing I thought would have kept people away but they didn't really the trailers don't hint at that it looks not like really. just a normal superhero I mean it looks uh, dark but nothing that people yeah, aren't used to at this point yeah people no one would know how how bleak <laughs> a story it actually is. Yeah. Um, and maybe the time. I mean, it's long. I mean, it's not insanely long, but, like, you know, it's it's cl- it closes in on three hours. Yeah. And people may... I mean, some people... I, I mean, I myself don't really look at that very much. Uh, I mean, I go and... S- if it's a movie I'm interested in, I will go and see it. And then it's like, oh, that was longer than I expected it to be, or shorter. Um but uh, oh, I'm a busy guy. I always got to know how long a movie is before I go into it. Yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not that busy. I just kind of walk around. Um, but uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's I, I think it's I think it's, you know, I don't think there's a, a mystery to it, but I really didn't. It didn't occur to me that it would ever not do very well. I mean, it it, it was number one at the box office opening weekend. Um, as I and I'm sure a lot of people thought it would be, but apparently there was a huge fall off uh, during the week, and then again, I I am interested to see uh, how it did this weekend. Yeah. Um, I imagine it probably it certainly I can't imagine it being number one, but uh, I don't know. Maybe it fell off tremendously. Um, I think you know. I mean, it's got. It had a cool trailer. Yeah. It's got that image of the smiley face with blood on it, which is yeah. a really appealing just Yeah. It, that really I, I don't know, that image really strikes at something in you. I mean that's that's why it's on the cover of the graphic novel and right. everything. That, uh, um I I wonder if I think maybe what got a lot of people into the theater for three hundred mm-hmm. was a certain amount of bloodlust. Like the yeah. the trailers for three hundred were not shy about letting you know there's going to be a lot of blood in this movie. Right. And the thing is, there's a lot of blood in Watchmen. Yeah. And they didn't really uh, hint at that, maybe, as much as they could have. Yeah, I wonder how they could have done that. Just, just I mean, maybe put out a Red Band trailer or something like that with yeah. every violent scene from the film. Well, that would be a pretty long trailer, because there's a <laughs> lot of true. violence in the movie. Yeah, like that, uh, I remember... I guess it was over a year ago now. Um, you telling me because I because the the idea of the red band trailer I hadn't really it was kind of new to me at the time. And you're like you need to you need to watch the Rambo uh, red <laughs> band trailer. I'm like okay, and I didn't know what that meant. And then I was like, what kind of trailer is this? <laughs> and it really freaked me out. Um, and uh, but yeah, I've, I feel like that's kind of a good marketing. Uh, that can be a good marketing not ploy, but strategy is like 
Oh, we've got uh, this now, and people kind of know what it means, so let's play this up. Let's yeah. show these arms splattering all over the place. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, spoilers? Um, anyway, so we've been talking for a while. Would you like to... Uh, let's get into the topic. Okay. Um, trying to find some, trying to find a segue. Can't really... Can't I, really will, I will just say what it is. Well, let's get into it, shall we? All right. Um, actually, I'll tell a story... That led to this. Okay. I was talking with a coworker uh, a few months ago about the film Wally, and at the time it was my favorite movie of the year, and I believe it had just won several critics' awards for best film of the year, and he found that to be uh, silly. And this is a guy who know uh, honestly he knows what he's talking about. He's a, he has a really good taste in film. Uh, he submitted a, a, top, a top ten for our character list, and I think seven of his made it. Um, and so, he's just he's a he's a smart guy, but he, when we were talking about Wally, he exhibited kind of a strange attitude, um, mostly towards animation, but also he's like he goes, why are so many people? He's like, why do they, why do they call it the best movie of the year? It's a movie for kids, and I was like. Well, there's stuff for adults as well. I was like, do you really? He goes, okay. Do you really think there's as much stuff for adults in Wally as there is in like Milk or any uh-huh. of these other really great films? He's, and I was like, um, uh, you know what? Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think be. there is. Yeah, but that's not the point of this conversation. Right, this story. right. And so, and he's like, also, he's like, he goes, and then he he led into uh, another part of his argument that to me was more more compelling because it gets to uh it's it's a very core argument that i hadn't really heard about art and uh-huh. what makes for good art it's a very academic argument that he and i uh, had at the time where he said that he goes you know he goes really great film and i this can probably go to larger art but we'll stick to film right now he's like really great film is made when there are limitations when there are you know, it's like with animation, you can do whatever you want to do. You know, you ha- the the director has no limitations. Anything he thinks of, he can do. He's like, but great art. He's like, you know, we live in a world of limitations, and art, the way it is created, should reflect that. And so, even in the difficulty of creating art, and he's like, he goes, when you, he's like, when you think of a lot of the great like the best movies out there. I mean, you know, there there are or like great scenes or great moments like chances are they're the director coming up with a practical solution to a problem. Um and he's like and for that reason he's like animation regardless of what it whether it's for kids or or otherwise. He's like animation is never going to be as great because it's just limitless. And now, I don't agree with that. Let me tell you. First, I'm going to tell but you th- why your friend you. is wrong. Okay. And then we'll get into the topic. Probably. Co-worker. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's also a, a good guy. Um, his theory here is, it seems like he's presupposing that any filmmaker at all, without limitations, would make a great film. Mm-hmm. That, you know, what, you hear what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. Like, uh, what's the Andrew... 
Stanton? Stanton. Stanton. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I always want to say Andrew Sullivan. That's a different guy. Um, he he still had to find the, the uh, for one thing, the restraint within himself not to do whatever crazy ass shit he could do. Right. Right. Um, I mean, a lot of Wally is a very spare story, you know, yeah. for the for the beginning of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's so he's got the limitations he puts on himself to mm-hmm. stick to telling a story that needs to be told and that would be compelling. Yeah. Um, he's also got the limitations of what an audience will accept. Yeah. He's uh, and just the idea that there are no limitations in animation is is kind of crazy to me too. That's just a different set of limitations, I think. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the things that I had brought up to him at the time was uh, I said, because I think he brought up the idea of, uh, wh- this wasn't his prime argument, but one example of it was was acting. He's like, he goes, he goes you mean to tell me that like this robot or whatever in, in an animated film is going to give the same, is going to be as heartfelt as an actual live performance in front of the camera? And I was like, and I, I had said, it's like, well, you've got an actor who only who can only use his voice. It is it is a different kind of limit and it's, has it's, to move you. It's even more difficult because yeah. when you've got a live actor on yeah. the screen, he's he or she is taking care of everything him or herself, mm-hmm. the both the, the voice and the movement and the facial expression and everything. Right. Whereas now... In animation, in order to get a good performance, yeah. you've got to work in tandem. The the yeah, voice actor and the animators have to, you know, be on the same page. And the director w- pulling them all together. And yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it, it was just, it was a weird thing. I mean, there were a lot of reasons that, uh, unfortunately, the the environment in which we were in, we couldn't talk about this for the 40 minutes that I wanted to. Yeah. Um, but it just struck me as such a... Like you said, I mean, it's the thing that got me the most is the concept of like, I mean, it's 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 hard to explain. Just in my view, art shouldn't have any limits. The really the only limit should be, like you said, whatever the director, like the director or writer or whatever you want to say. Um limiting themselves like that i feel like that should be the only limitation is they they think okay is this good it isn't okay well i will limit myself to what is good and that is what i will make and i feel like that's what art should be now of course that that's not what it is a lot of the time and that brings us to our topic this this discussion that you you brought up this story to me last week and it got us talking about the way that filmmakers react and adapt, if you will, to the restrictions and limitations that are placed upon them. Right. I'll have to find a pithier way to say that for the episode title, yeah. or episode description. <laughs> but, um... Yeah, I mean, I guess we could say, like, overcoming limitations, but that's going to sound kind of cheesy. Um, yeah, you know, it's like going to sound like you can imagine directors in wheelchairs or something. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, I, again, let's get into it, shall we? Uh, yeah. I, I would like to start, if you don't mind. Go right ahead, David. Well, you mentioned um, last week when we were talking about doing this episode, you were like, uh, I guess I'll have to watch The Five Obstructions. Uh, yes, which did, I didn't. You did not? Okay. No. But um, the fi- for those who don't know, The Five Obstructions is a Lars von Trier film. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a documentary where uh, Lars von Trier took... There's this filmmaker who made a short film that Lars von Trier loves. Mm-hmm. 
and then he he uh, he set up this experiment where this this filmmaker had to remake his film five times, each one with a different obstruction, like a different thing he couldn't do, yeah, uh, or a different thing he had to do, you right. know. Um, as a film, the five obstructions is just okay, but it's uh, fascinating from a scholarly standpoint, and it's. Uh, not surprising at all that it came from Lars von Trier because he's a part of the Dogma 95 movement, right. movement which is uh, it's probably the biggest and uh, maybe the only film movement ever of people willfully putting inst- obstructions on themselves. Yeah. So let's talk about Dogma 95 for a second. I would imagine that anyone listening to this show probably knows what it is, but let's still let's do... Let's imagine they don't. <laughs> let's still do a rundown. It was a sort of manifesto, this group of, of filmmakers who said that... Um, we're going to make films uh, with these limitations, which is, I, I can't remember all, there's a lot of them, mm-hmm. and some of them are like fucking insane, <laughs> but uh, there's like, it has to be natural light, it has to be available light, you can't bring, even if you want a light with a lamp, you can't bring a lamp to the, oh, it, you can't shoot on, on any sets, it's all in location, yeah. and it's all in whatever light is there, It ha- it's on video of course, yeah. uh, because it like, has to be. For that, <laughs> you know, if you're going to shoot right. with that little light. Uh, you can't bring any props. You can only use what's already in the room. Uh, you can't have any non-diegetic music. Um, uh, I, I can't remember all of them. But th- there's a lot of them. I think the camera, I think it even ha- has, you can't even use a tripod. I think it's all, all handheld. Now, and you know more about this group of filmmakers than I do, I think. Um, at least you know more about the movement uh, in general. Yeah. What is your? This is a. I mean, I it, not necessarily. I guess this is this isn't necessarily a tangent, but like, no, I want to talk about Dogma ninety five. Okay, what was their reasoning behind this? Was it was it purely experimental, or did they think that this was the purest form of art? Uh, I think it's the former. Okay, and I think the reason that a lot of snobs look down on Dogma ninety five is because they assume it's the latter. Okay, they assume that these are people saying this is the only true way to make film. Okay. Whereas I'm saying it's much like the five obstructions. It's just a little like let's see yeah. if we can do this, you know. Yeah. Um, and I mean it's also quite telling that uh, Thomas Vintenberg and Lars von Trier have and other people from that movement have gone on since then to make films that are clearly not Dogma ninety five films. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean Dogville is entirely on the set. Yeah. <laughs> That's there's yeah. nothing uh, Dogma ninety five ish about it. Um. And so, I, yeah, I think that's just the sort of hump I think a lot of people who di- who dismiss or scoff at dogma need to get over. Is it's just they're not saying that every film that's come beforehand is somehow false, yeah, you know, or cheap, uh, or a cheat of some sort. They're just saying, hey, let's see what happens if we do this. And then they made the fucking celebration, which is amazing. It's an amazing film. Never saw it. You should see it. I will see it. Uh, it's very good. It's I not called the fucking celebration. It's just oh, called okay. the celebration. Um. <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, maybe you're approaching the title in a different way. Is it the fucking celebration or is it the fucking celebration? <laughs> Sorry. Um, the, the I did read a book uh, by a guy whose name I believe was Ray Carney. It was when I was taking my John Cassavetes class. I think I still have the book. Uh, and if ever, hey, if you're a film student and uh, you want to be regularly infuriated by a book, <laughs> uh, read anything that Ray Carney has to say about John Cassavetes because... Don't get me wrong. I love John Cassavetes. However, there are other ways to make a film. I mean, oh, just, yeah. I mean, this guy, his attitude is such, I, I, I can't even describe it because 
he just it's very much like their mentality which was purely experimental he really seems to think that's the only way to do it it's just because one of the reasons that he hates like Orson Welles and Alfred Hitch- and Alfred Hitchcock you know two of the best ever <laughs> um is because it's just like oh there's so much artifice in their films it's like yes film is artifice yeah i mean even you know some of them may not feel like it, like Cassavetes, because he's trying to remove as much of that as possible. But there, that doesn't necessarily mean that's the best way for his films, but not all of them. And it's just, I mean, it, it's it's weird when you get into, like, this kind of weird theory about, like, it's like, no, you can't do that. Can't do that. No, you got to do this. No, it's got to be. It's like, jeez, <laughs> that's that's not the kind of film critic I ever wish to be. Yeah. And I hope I'm not, David. Yeah. So, um, sorry. Is there anything else you wa- uh, about Dogma ninety five? We need to because I, I just wanted to defend it for a bit. And, okay. Uh, which I did already. Okay. Um, but uh, well, what? I I I I'd like sat down to do some research for this topic, and I realized I don't really know what to research. Right. I, I just sort of went on what I knew. How did how did you approach this preparing well, for this episode? Well, I was trying to because because of uh, we thought about you know we first came up with this based on. The story of me talking to my friend about Wally, uh-huh. I tried to think in terms of okay, well, let's imagine he has a point. Let's let's imagine that there are okay. some. Um, I can suspend I'm, my disbelief. For yes, a second. I'm purely imagining. <laughs> all right, because as I said, from in my view, what art should be is just the film, just the filmmaker uh, who's free to do whatever he wants and can do whatever he wants. Um, but the fact of the matter is, that's not it. That's not the case a lot of the time. I mean, th- you know, due to, like, special effects and animation and stuff, you, a filmmaker with an unlimited budget or whatever can do whatever he wants, but it's still there's still a lot of obstacles to overcome. And so I tried to think of, like, okay, well, his, this, this friend of mine, his argument is it could be viewed as something of a practical argument. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I started thinking of, like, you know, just a few moments in movies that I like and in which a filmmaker was faced with an obstacle, overcame it, and then in his overcoming, it actually is better than if he had not had that obstacle in the first place. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the first ones I can think of off the top of my head, and it's, sorry, I'm a big Orson Welles fan, is uh, from Othello, which um, there is a scene Oh yeah, in a Turkish bath the best scene in the movie. Best scene in the movie. And yeah. pretty much everybody agrees with that. Yeah. Um, in which, uh, and I'm sorry, everybody. Uh, I know f- I know film better than I know Shakespeare. Uh, I don't remember the name of the character who's uh, about to get killed. Do yeah, you? I, no, I don't okay. know. Well, there's a character about to be uh, killed in this, in this uh, Turkish bath. And so, you know, he's running around, but he's only got like, you know, like a loincloth on. And it really adds to like this weird sense of vulnerability like this guy he has nothing to defend himself with uh-huh. i mean he's he's go- there this guy's absolutely gonna die but we're gonna see him get chased around a little bit first it really is a very sad um and yet kind of thrilling sequence and it's just so creative that it was set in a turkish bath but it wasn't set there originally those who know orson welles even a little bit know that he didn't have a lot of the money that he would have liked to, <laughs> to have, and he spent like four years making Othello. Um, and on that particular day that he was filming, it's like, all right, time for the death scene of so and so. What the costumes didn't arrive? 
Uh, okay, here's what we're going to do. <laughs> Loin claws, and we'll just say it's in a Turkish bath. And so so that's what he did. Like, if, it, if the costumes had arrived and everything had gone exactly the way he had planned, then it would have been, then the scene, I'm sure it still would have been really good, but it wouldn't have had that weird, just that weird aspect, that com- that concept of like, well, why would he set it here? Now, you know, <laughs> it almost kind of ruins some of the magic a little bit. It's like, oh, because the costumes didn't arrive. That's why he set it there. But to his credit, he didn't say, well, all right, well, we'll wait, we'll shoot this tomorrow when the costumes get here. Yeah. He just said, okay, I see an opportunity, and I will do it this way. And so... As David said, and I agree, and a lot of people agree, that's the best scene in the film. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I mean, so I look at that, and I think about my friend who says, like, films are best when there are obstacles to overcome. Um, and I think, well, well, in this instance, perhaps. And then the other major story that I think of is Jaws. Um, in which the shark, as as Richard Dreyfus famously says, the shark is not working. Uh, in every interview he ev- he's ever given, he tells the story about all the walkie-talkies all over the island, uh-huh. and you would just you could be anywhere and just hear people saying that the shark is not working. And um, and so they had designed this really awesome mechanical shark. They had designed it on dry land, and then they put it in the water, and it didn't work so well. <laughs> and because, as it turns out, the ocean is a little more merciless than a swimming pool. Um, and so it didn't work a lot of the time, and then Spielberg hit on the, I- hit on the idea of the barrels, which is, it was something that they had anyway. Uh, Quint shoots these barrels full of air into the shark, uh-huh. and the barrels basically force the shark to the surface so it's easier to kill. Um, and so it was a device that was there anyway, but they, were never, they weren't intending on using it as a signifier of the shark. They were planning on just using the shark. Like once they, you know, they were going to hold off on showing the shark for a long time, but then once they showed it, they, won't, you know, they put a lot of money into this, <laughs> uh, into this thing, so we're going to show it. Um, but it didn't always work, and so then they came up with the idea of these barrels. And the barrels would pop up, and you knew the shark was there, but the beautiful thing is you didn't—you never really knew how long the ropes were, uh-huh. and so you don't know really how close the shark is. You don't know, oh, is he right next to the boat? Is he further away? And so, like, it actually adds tension, but it's also kind of... It, it, there are moments where it's used for humor, uh-huh. and then... Then there are moments where it's used for even more tension than if it was just the shark there. Yeah. In which the shark has three barrels on him, apparently like each one basically the equivalent of like a hundred pounds, and it's just and it's supposed to at this point, like, well, the shark is just it has to be a, on the surface now. There's no way it can haul three hundred pounds of air mm-hmm. underwater. And then of course you see the barrels just disappear underwater and then all of a sudden you're like, Oh man, <laughs> This is a big shark, you know. Um, and so, and then what's beautiful about that is you get so used to seeing the barrels that it still is a sh- uh, shocking when you see the big shark head, you yeah. know. He didn't overuse that and kind of kill the 
the excitement of seeing it. And so that was a limitation, a very practical one of, hey, this thing's not working. Son of a bitch, what do we do? He, you know, and then they came up with a solution that that would work within the story, and they used it to an even greater effect than if everything had gone according to plan. Um, so those, I, there, there are other, uh, well, <laughs> there are other examples of this that I won't be talking about until next week. Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but next week will be fun. But those are the two that that really. When I, I mean, as soon as my, f- you know, months ago, as soon as my friend talked about, you know, practical limitations that in the process, you know, it's almost, I go to the gym every once in a while and, and it's the, it's the concept of like, you know, you, you, you know, like if you're lifting weights or something, you lift and, you know, you lift a certain amount until the point that it's like, okay, well, this is easy and now I need a challenge. And so, like, some of the some of the best, you know, some of the best moments in film come when a filmmaker faces a challenge, you know, like that scene in Othello, like the like those scenes in Jaws. And so while I do not agree with my friend completely, um, I do see his point. And Mm -hmm. so, like, you ask me, like, um, when I when I wanted to approach this subject, I said I thought, okay, well. I'll approach it from his perspective first and okay. see if I see where he's coming from. And so I'm sorry I've been talking for a while. David, go, <laughs> y- you, it's your all, all yours now. <coughs> well, you mentioned next week. Let's go ahead and say what we're going to talk about next week. It's okay. going to be sort of – it's very much related to this yeah. uh, episode. Next week is all about the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code. Which is code. The, the biggest limitation to, to ever be placed on the American film I- industry. And yeah. uh, it, le- it was – I mean, it lasted more than 20 years, but it was really – enforced for 20 years because yeah. of uh is it joseph breen something breen yeah uh, joseph i believe um anyway so we're, we're gonna be talking about the Hayes code next week but uh i approach this topic more from that sort of point of view like large limitations that are exerted on filmmakers externally mm-hmm. usually by by a government or some sort of watchdog okay you know uh and um you know we have we had the Hayes code here which is not uh a governmental thing it's right it's um i mean it's essentially the film industry policing itself but with a weird amount of input from catholics which is yeah also kind of weird for america because <laughs> yeah. i mean i don't know uh except for you know a few months in 1963 we don't really run shit as catholics <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry david go on <laughs> Um. <laughs> anyway, that was dumb. Um, <laughs> but I so I started thinking of other other cultures that have had this. Um, well, I mean, if you, uh, we we you know we have the Hayes Code because the film industry is a private industry here. Right. You know, in in a lot of other countries, especially early on, uh, it was more socialized. Mm-hmm. It was a part of the government. You know, if right. you look at, uh. One of my favorite films of all time, in the namesake of this program, Battleship Potemkin. Whoop. You know, that's not just a a film that that Sergei Eisenstein was like, "This is a story I'd like to tell." It was right. like a piece of a commissioned piece of propaganda. Yeah, you know. And um, I, I haven't read enough about Eisenstein to know about his own political sympathies. Yeah, I, I think he was uh, actually in agreement with the the revolution and stuff like that, from yeah. what I understand and what I see in his films. But it's still, 
I, I, I still think that Sergei Eisenstein was a, a filmmaker first, you know, and a, and a propagandist or, or government employee mm-hmm. second, you know, and he found a way he was given like, tell the story. Cause it's a true story. The battleship of Temkin. Right. You know, he was saying, told, you know, make a film about the battleship of Temkin. And he made a, a revolutionary film in more than one sense. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's obviously a film about the revolution, but it, in the history of film, it's a revolutionary film. Yeah. Uh, if, and that from a pure filmmaking standpoint, um, could be about anything. It's not the fact that it's a piece of propaganda that makes it uh, so famous. It's that right. it's that he uses techniques that were uh, brand new. You know, uh, the 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 way the film is edited together was not the way that films were made here in America at that right. time. Uh, you know, so he he sort of had a limitation placed on him by being told this is the story you're going to tell. Right. But he went on to make one of the one of my top ten favorite films of all time. Yeah. Um yeah, I mean, he, he uh, I, I took a, a class on uh, Soviet Russia, and, uh, you know, Eisenstein was, he made, uh, let's see, I believe he made Ivan the Terrible. Mm-hmm. Did he make Peter the Great? I don't remember. He made Alexander Nevsky. I Alexander, know, because okay. I've seen that uh, one. You're, okay, I'm sorry, yes, Alexander Nevsky, thank you. Um, and and it's interesting because he is a film, I like I like that you said it, it was a commission, almost as, almost as if like we've got this project. Let's see who the right person is. Yeah. It was more like, hey, you're gonna make this film. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just like, okay, you know, I'm on board with what you think, right? Whatever, just make this and make it in favor of us. Yeah, and and yet, and that's the thing is, you would think that a movie like that, you could just, it would be very. You think it would feel very perfunctory, like he's going through the motions, like frankly. If somebody, for lack of a better word, forced me to make a film, even if it's something that I agree with, just in just my natural contrariness would be like, all right, screw it. I don't care. Uh, <laughs> I know that I agree with what you have to say, but uh, uh, I, I don't care. I don't like people telling me what to do. Um, <laughs> well, you're a maverick, Smith. Absolutely. No question about it. Uh, you know, as evidenced by the fact that uh, many books that I wanted to read in high school, I did not when I was when I was uh, required to. <laughs> you know what? I used to like in, in middle school, I was very much like that. I yeah. would either not read it or like just not read it with any vigor at all. You know, I remember right. like just sort of like. Like just tearing, like practically skimming Red Badge of Courage, yeah. which is a great book. Oh yeah, but it's like I want to fucking read this, you know? Right. But you know, I got over that and ended up reading some of the greatest books ever in high school. You know, I read The Scarlet Letter, which is still one of my all-time favorites, and Heart of Darkness. I read those books after after <laughs> high school. I got. It. I'm like, hey, I wonder why those books were recommended to me. <laughs> maybe I'll maybe I'll actually crack them. Um, but like, but he didn't. He didn't see. Uh, sorry, going back to Eisenstein. <laughs> going not, back to the and topic. Not, not <laughs> me in high school. Um, in Nathaniel Hawthorne. <laughs> <laughs> but the, uh, but he didn't approach it that way. Like he approached it like, oh, I have an opportunity to spend a lot uh-huh. of the government's money. They will give me as much money as I want. And granted, I do have this big limitation, which is I have to tell a story they want me to tell. Uh-huh. Um, and like and like you said, it doesn't feel. Uh, perfunctory instead he uses the opportunity like he like some would say like oh well he's being forced to make something that he may not have wanted to make that's a limitation but he saw it as an opportunity because like oh with this limitation comes lots and lots of money to do whatever i kind of whatever i want and he makes these 
amazing, huge films. I, I haven't seen all of uh, Alexander Nevsky, which is really good. Is it? Yeah. yeah. It's what from what I saw, I was like, yeah, I got to put that on my Netflix queue. <laughs> um, but did you? I'm by sorry, the way, I, we've been doing this. By the uh, we've been doing this two years. This is episode 104. This yeah. is our two year anniversary. Oh yeah. And the show is called Battleship Pretension, and I don't think I've ever told that great joke. That is the greatest film nerd joke ever. What's black and white and red all over? What? Battleship Potemkin. <laughs> <laughs> That's one of my favorite jokes of all time. I hope everybody out there already knew it, but if not, you're welcome. I've not heard. I <laughs> hadn't heard that. Oh, man. <laughs> I hung out with the wrong people in, in uh, college. Um, now, did you have any other uh, any Oh, other yeah. There's, well, um, as, as uh, listeners know from our episode on Zhang Yimou, I'm a big fan of that. That what's the the sort of fifth generation Chinese filmmakers and those are guys who uh, had limitations uh, put on them like restrictions that they could not make anything anti revolutionary mm-hmm. you know um, and kind of found ways to say fuck you a lot yeah you know and Zhang Yimou did it somewhat subtly and was able to get away with it whereas there's a m- movie that I'm, I know I've talked about in the show before and I. I know exactly how to spell the filmmaker's name. I will not say it because I'm not going to embarrass myself. Okay. But the film is called The Blue Kite. Okay. And he made it and was essentially banned from making films anymore. For it, the, ban, the ban was only fairly recently lifted and he made a film that I didn't see. Hmm. But um, uh, he was not allowed to make films for a long time because of The Blue Kite. You know, And they like, uh, you know, Gong Li, the great actress yeah. who... Is terrible in American films, <laughs> um, sadly. Uh, you know, she's been put on restrictions as well for appearing in Zhang Yimou's films, you know, because it, it, it's... I, I often wonder, and we'll talk about this a lot more next week, um, when someone skirts the, the, the sort of restrictions right. in a really obvious way, yeah, is it, is it is it the watchdog that's stupid, or is the watchdog just assuming that the people are stupid? Because if you watch Judo, which we talked about, right, um, it's pretty easy to figure out what he's saying. Like the metaphor is pretty obvious, you know. Yeah. And then if you, I mean, if you watch To Live, there's hardly any metaphor at all. You know, it's it, it just it it, it, it it the movie just manages to just refrain from commenting on <laughs> certain things when it doesn't it. it because it doesn't have to. And I wonder, is it like, is the Chinese government just like not seeing what he's saying? Or do they just think that the people are stupid and not going to uh, get it? My vote is they're not seeing it. Okay. Um, just to, just to <laughs> un- because I think, you know, with the mentality of like, you need to go through with a fine tooth comb. I think it's, I think you're more likely to kind of, you know, uh, what is it? You miss the woods for the trees. Yeah. You can't see the forest for the trees. Like you look at, you look at everything so minutely, but not, you look at it specifically, but not necessarily deeply. Yeah. Um, well, because it's probably seeing as it's like a bureaucracy type of thing. They probably have like a a, a set list of things that can't be in a movie, right. you know. And uh, and as long as they don't, you know, they say uh, frack instead of fuck. Yeah. <laughs> you can get away with it. Yeah. I mean, there's a. I was going to tell this story next uh, next week, but I'll 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 tell it now because it actually applies. Okay. Um, when James Whale was making uh. Bride of Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. There's a character named uh, Doctor Pretorius, who um, he has a line where he uh, he makes reference to to God. It's like 
he says he says or God if you believe your Bible stories. Now in the original script it was or God if you believe your fairy tales. But part uh-huh. of the code was of course you don't uh, can't say that. Yeah, <laughs> you, can't, you can't say that uh, that the Bible is fairy tales. Um, so it's like oh okay well we'll just switch it to Bible uh, Bible stories and we won't change the tone. And so ultimately he says, or God, if you believe your Bible stories. And it's like, that is somehow worse. <laughs> yeah. You actually, he says it with such contempt yeah. that it's like, it's like, uh, well, but the, as far as the words go, everything's fine. Yeah. Um, That's perfect. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it is amazing. I mean, just the way, I mean, one of the, Ebert has been one of the most outspoken people about, I mean, I, I mean, I guess you know, limitations, you can get into, like, censorship, and then that involves the ratings board as well. Mm-hmm. And he just, he has such, he has such things to say about the ridiculousness of the ratings board and how yeah. how they will miss. Their, it's like, oh, this, uh, it's like, oh, this film is clearly, would clearly do best with this audience. But it's got a few too many F words. So that audience will never see it, ever. Yeah, I remember um, he'd said that about, uh, uh, Ken Loach's Sweet Sixteen, which is a film that, while very profane, yeah. is would probably be very important to anyone who's uh, any boy who's a teenage, a poor teenager. Yeah, he said it about Mean Creek as well, which oh, yeah. is of course there's so many different uh, archetypes in that film. And it's, yeah, the MPAA is a perfect example of what I'm talking about, where they have that list. Yeah, and they because uh, we talked about this this past summer. I th- I'm sure, if not on the podcast, definitely the two of us, uh, The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. It 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 doesn't have enough blood or cuss words. Yeah, I'm from Missouri. I say cuss, not curse. <laughs> um, <laughs> someone called me out on that recently, so I'm suddenly self-conscious about it. That's but, um, yeah, it doesn't have the blood or cuss words to get an R rating. But if you stand back and watch it tonally, that's an R-rated film. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean if – because that's the thing is we're probably going to – I think we're going to probably talk more about this uh, next week. But just the concept of ratings, it's not about – like Ebert's big thing is that it should be a, an indicator of the audience that it is meant for. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, Dark Knight, it may not have the things that constitutes a rated R movie, but it's it's probably best for adults. I mean, kids will enjoy certain aspects of it, but there's yeah. no way they're going to get all the stuff that is clearly there. Um, yeah, and they're also going to be some disturbed by some of the stuff that is right. also clearly there. Right. I mean, it's like it's like, oh well, I guess there's no blood, so pencil shoved through a guy's eye. That's all right, right? And yeah. there, and we don't actually see it. So the concept of a knife through the cheek, that's okay. Right? Yeah, that's fine. And uh, the huge scar on the guy's stomach, there's no blood coming out of it, right? That's okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's ugh, well, this is frustrating. You've made me angry, David. Um, <laughs> well, we're coming up on an hour here. Yeah. And I I kind of saved uh, my favorite for last. Go get him. Um, this this coincides sides with my the time, the sort of late 90s, the time that I was becoming a big film buff. Right. You know, was also a golden era in Iranian film. Okay. And so I saw a lot of them in when I was, you know, was like a senior in high school and my freshman year of, of college, like going to uh like webster university in their little theater where they would show movies that didn't get a wide release and all kinds of stuff and uh uh so i saw films like um you know uh what's the one the apple and 
<laughs> not the cheesy uh 80s 1980 disco future movie the apple <laughs> which is supposed to be one of those awesome so bad it's good movies that i've never seen gotta say i haven't heard of it <laughs> um but like the apple and a time for drunken horses and uh what else did i see one called color of paradise i think it's called the color of paradise which is gorgeous and still just thinking about it makes me want to cry and then there's the white balloon which came out mm. came out earlier but i didn't see until later uh which is fucking amazing and yeah. everyone uh everyone listening if you haven't seen the white balloon put it on your netflix queue it's so good uh and there's sort of a a theme throughout these movies or, yeah. or a common thread the the uh you know theocratic iranian government mm-hmm. would not allow we had such strict limitations on what could be shown as far as romance mm-hmm. and even any sort of intimate relationship between a man and a woman at all yeah that the filmmakers just found it easier to tell stories about children because it didn't apply. Right, right. And so uh, pretty much all those movies that I mentioned, I mean, The Apple has is sort of multi-generational, but pretty much all those movies are about children. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's so fascinating uh, to see uh, to see that world through their eyes because children, uh, I mean, the, the older a person gets, the more calcified they become in their culture, right. you know? Children are more relatable across culture lines, I think. You know, it's easier... Uh, I mean, for... There's you know, this is, there's a documentary about this that I can't remember the name of, but, it, I mean, uh, Israeli and Pakistani children will get along a lot better than Israeli and Pakistani adults because yeah. uh, Pakistani... I'm an idiot. Palestinian. Oops. Can we, can we erase that? What? No, <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Okay, yes. It was just you uh, misspeaking, David. It's, yeah. It's fine. Um, <laughs> they both start with P-A. What am I supposed to do? I'm making two big Pennsylvanians <laughs> and the Israelis. <laughs> but yeah, I'm sorry. Israelis and, and Palestinians. I, I apologize to anyone I've, I've offended. Um, like the children will get along more than the adults. Right. And uh, I think that helps. It, it helps us understand Iranian culture because it's been so, it's been painted with such a broad bu- brush by our our press and our government, you mm-hmm. know, wh- who the Iranians are, that they're part of the axis of evil or what yeah. have you, you know, and they're just, uh, they're all crazy and they mis- mistreat their women, which is true, of course. Yeah. But, I mean, it's you get such a more well-rounded understanding of the world by seeing it through the eyes of someone who's uh, essentially more innocent, yeah. you know? Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, that, I think that's, I think that's why I saved this for the end. It's, it's to me, the most fascinating example of the way that, uh, not just a filmmaker, but a whole culture of filmmakers have overcome their limitations, yeah. uh, and it's made the it it makes the films better. You you get to see this whole yeah. generation of of Iran through the eyes of their children. Yeah. So uh, to bring it back around, and you know, uh, to couch this in the uh, argument that my friend and I were having, you know, because that's the thing is I feel like uh, my first reaction when he was mentioning this was to say, was, of course, to say, like, oh, he's completely wrong. But he's not. Because, I mean, you just, I mean, you just mentioned, you know, an entire group of filmmakers who made films that, if these limitations weren't there, they'd still be making good films. There's no question about it. Yeah. But the films have s- such a different feel to them. I mean, they're just, they go from, like, really great films to, in like, great, memorable films that that you won't forget because of 
the perspective that they're told from, and they they quite possibly would never have thought to tell them from that perspective if it weren't for the limitation. And so, I do not. I still don't agree with my friend, but he does have a point. Um, I just, it's just a a shame that he has gone so far in that direction because well, his his point is that. Uh, you can't make good film without limitations. Yeah. And he's kind of right about that. Where he's wrong is that the idea that animation doesn't have limitations right. on it. So right. it's more of a, yeah, it's a less uh, academic argument, more of just a semantic one. Yeah. And so. And um, I'd also like to point out that uh, Israel and Pakistan are not exactly buddy buddy either. <laughs> so I was kind of right. right. Yeah, they're fine. They're fine. <laughs> uh, we all know that. Um, but uh, all right. Well, uh, so episode 104. Two years, David. Two years, yeah. Very exciting. Uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, well, I wish we, uh, you know, we, yeah. I guess we, we, uh, we didn't find a, a, a nice little bow to put on this episode, which is kind of okay with me. Yeah. But uh, it, it just it just bothers me. I, How about a celebration of everything that we absolutely are, which is an academic dis- discussion that we ultimately don't have a, a nice cherry on top. There we go. That's pretty much <laughs> us. There we um, go. Okay, I'll so uh, yeah, write us a review. And yeah, I did yeah, two <laughs> years of frustration for the listeners, and now we have uh, some new listeners. And uh, yeah, this is it. This is what we are, and uh, we always have been and probably will continue to be. Um, <laughs> but uh, now we do have um, – I'm still working out some of the kinks, but at this point I think it will work. Uh, we do have a couple of – ha- there's a new way to get a hold of us. Yes, a All more right. individualized way. Yes. Uh, so – if you wanted to email something to me and you don't want David to know about it, <laughs> all right, you can email me at Tyler at BattleshipPretension.com. However, if there is something that for some reason you don't want me to see, I don't know why. <laughs> that's maybe, you know, maybe I give off a certain air of judgment, whatever. That's fine. If you want David and just David, you want him to see it, then you email him at David at BattleshipPretension.com. Now, if there's something you want both of us to see, I would say just email it to both of those. Um, I, yeah, I think maybe there will be a third one at some point, but uh, right now, just I would rather not there not be. Yeah, two is enough. But um, this be good. Yeah, you know, you won't have to read people pointing out where I've uh, accidentally said something sexist, and I won't have to read people uh, reacting to your insane Joker theories. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, and you know, I am going to start my own podcast called Insane Joker <laughs> Theories. Um, but uh, but yeah, so you can get us, uh, you can email us there, and of course on the, uh, and we are thinking of at some point starting some kind of uh, email newsletter. But uh, we'll d- we'll talk about that some other time uh, when we actually come up with what that's going to be. Um, yeah, what do people need to know about us? <laughs> I don't know, just you know what's going on with the website and stuff. Um, I mean, I got you and Jenny's like Christmas newsletter thing, <laughs> you know. I'm going to end this and with I, a story. I I'm knew that you but uh, you know that you went to visit your old <laughs> hometown of Taft, California. <laughs> but the listeners don't need to know that. That's true. Well, no, they're not going to get my specific <laughs> okay. Christmas newsletter. Okay. Although frankly, <laughs> listeners if you want to, just send me your address and you'll get a picture of me and my wife and a Christmas letter that I wrote. All right? <laughs> I'm going to tell a story that has nothing to do I'm going to tell a story that has nothing to do with movies. I'm sorry everybody. This is very self-indulgent. I don't care. Episode 104. Enjoy it. So, so Jen and I, we, you know, we're a couple, uh, we're married, so we do the things that couples are apparently supposed to do. We send out Christmas cards and pictures and stuff, and, uh, 
and a letter saying, hey, here's what we did this year. And yes, sometimes it goes to somebody like David who knows us and was there for all that stuff. <laughs> um, and so Jen put together an outline and said, here, Tyler, write this. And so I wrote it. I, I wrote our Christmas letter and I wrote it what I consider to be very well. Uh-huh. And so I sent it out. Every single person has, has said like, Jenny, that Christmas letter was great. That, <laughs> it was very touching. And you even, I who have known you for <laughs> 10 years, I came, I, like, I came over and you're like, did you get the Christmas letter? And you both were like, who, which one of us do you think wrote it? And I was like, well, I assume Jenny. <laughs> yeah. And th- yeah, exactly. And so, and what's more is it's gotten to the point now that I'm clearly asking with a specific answer in mind because uh-huh. I imagine I didn't ask very sheepishly. I imagine I said, David, who do you think wrote that? <laughs> All right. Clearly the answer is not what you think it is, but you still said you're honest. I had to answer. be honest. Yeah. yeah uh, that's fine. But, uh, it, yeah, it, it, it doesn't have to do with any, you're not a flowery writer. You didn't type it with hearts over the lowercase eyes. <laughs> It's just that people just assume that the wife writes the newsletter. It's it, you know, and it's a it's a rotten double standard. It sure is. It sure is. Thanks a lot, feminism. <laughs> um, well, we're gonna get. I'm gonna get one email from that for that one. Um, so uh, anyway, so yeah. Uh, yeah sorry sh- about that story. We should send out a personalized newsletter. Newsletter. <laughs> I would love. That'd be awesome. We and just with like, if I buy a new pair of shoes or something, I could take a picture of them. Yes, just uh, <laughs> basically, just it's it's like a longer form of it's like a form of blogging and, right. and twittering and all that kind of thing. But uh, oh man, okay, we got in another news. David got his car washed this week, <laughs> and it needed it. <laughs> um, anyway, so yeah, I did break my glasses, so I got to get my, myself a new pair of glasses. Oh, and there's some tape on there. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, all right. Uh, iTunes, write us a review, uh, yeah. preferably a good one. Yeah. Uh, subscribe to us if you're not subscribed. It's yeah. nobody, not that hard. Uh, I don't know what's keeping you guys from doing that. <laughs> uh, go to the website. There's uh, there usually Thursday. Okay, usually Thursday, Friday is when the uh, the movie of the week goes up. Uh, but it is every week. Yeah. Um, and so the Thursday is when I get reminded to write it, and Friday is when I write it. <laughs> yeah. And then of course when it's my week. Uh, well, I have no excuse. <laughs> I just don't write it till usually Thursday night. There's also, of course, the donate button, which we always appreciate greatly whenever anyone uh, Very makes use so. of. It It comes in handy. There's, it sure uh, does. Yeah. This, isn't, this is only free for you. It isn't free for us. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, but anyway, so sorry about the last 10 minutes. And uh, I think it was fun. Yeah. But, thank, but, uh, seri- but seriously, folks, uh, <laughs> thanks for the uh, thanks for all the support over the last two years. Uh we're gonna continue on. I don't know. I don't know when there's gonna when we're ever gonna stop, David. Maybe when we when we run out of topics. Uh, yeah, that'll happen soon. I don't know <laughs> how soon it'll be. No, we've never talked about war movies or westerns. Like, there's huge topics that we've never di- that we've never done. Primarily because I'm always worried about. All right, if as long as I've got those two topics in my back pocket, we've right. we've never run out. So and also, I need to feel more comfortable talking about westerns. I, oh, okay, it's, okay. It's it's a a bit. I've seen a lot of the big ones, but it's a bit of a blind blind spot hmm. in my film knowledge. All right, so listen. I've never seen the man who shot Liberty Valance. Oh my. Okay, that's very good. I'm admitting that. That's fine. That's fine. I've, I still haven't seen It's a Wonderful Life. Um, yeah, that's just weird. But yeah, so listeners, uh, if ever you see 
that we are talking about westerns. <laughs> the end is nigh, everybody. Um, all right, so thanks for listening, and uh, we'll get you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.